Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Brabber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my god, how could he do that? Are you on Donate? What? Charles Darwin. All right, well, we are officially very near to the end of the NBA season after the Lakers took a 3-1 lead on the Miami Heat last night. And although we are not going to rule out some sort of remarkable comeback from the Heat, we are going to take this opportunity to, for the most part, reflect on this season through the, through the prism of these two teams, talk about some of their most important moments, and how they will be remembered years down the road. Because the 2020 season will not soon be forgotten. There are major implications of this final series and this season as a whole, and a lot of historic things happen. So let's start with what brought these teams to where they are and what has been so key for them in their success. And let's begin with Miami because they are the underdog story. They are the team that somehow managed to make it here versus the Lakers were almost the presumptive favorites with obviously two of the top five guys in basketball. And I think a big turning point for this Heat team was when they acquired Jay Crowder and Andre Godala through a midseason trade that involved them giving up Justin Winslow, Justice Winslow. So how will we remember that trade down the road and how important was that for them this season? Uh, I think we're going to remember them as genius moves made by a smart head coach and Eric Spolster, who was clearly planning on making this deep postseason run. I think he saw uh, a team like the Pacers, they were just going to run over regardless with their three-point shooting. Um, And then other teams in the East, the Celtics and Raptors, he realized whatever team we match up against does not have as much veteran leadership or talent as us. And if we make these moves, we can ultimately get to the finals where we're going to be playing LeBron. And I think he got two of the best players at the trade deadline you could to play defense against. Uh, Andre Iguodala, 29 career playoff games against LeBron, uh, a.k.a. the LeBron stopper. Jay Crowder, a guy who played with LeBron in Cleveland briefly. And uh, Crowder's played tough, hard-nosed defense all finals long against LeBron. He's built like a linebacker. And on top of that, he's given them solid shooting throughout the entirety of the playoffs. 40% through four games in the finals, 43 43- 43% versus the Bucks, a little bit shakier against the Celtics and Pacers, and the most three-pointers made in a single Heat postseason along with Duncan Robinson. Uh, Carson, I personally think that these are two of the uh, the best trades that he could have made and the most clairvoyant moves that Eric Spolstra could have made at the deadline. While I don't agree with giving up a potential dominant defensive playmaker like a Justice Winslow, uh, for this season, I think it was the best moves that uh, the Heat could have made. And what's so fascinating is we were doing a trade deadline pod when this news broke, and we were kind of like, ugh, why are you giving up Justice Winslow, who had played really well at the beginning of that season? Obviously, injuries are an eternal concern with him because he really struggles to stay out there on the court, but he was also showing some of that dynamism as a playmaker on the fast break. Obviously, that defensive potential that we had always seen, initiator setting up others, and now As we reflect on how it has turned out, it has been fundamental to this team's success. And when we look at how these guys were performing before they got to Miami, Jay Crowder was shooting 29% from three, was largely insignificant for that Memphis team just because when he's bricking like that, he's not really much of a plus to play because he has such a straightforward 3 and D role and the defense is always there. But if he's a poor shooter, then he's not as valuable. Then for the rest of the regular season with Miami, shot 44.5% from deep. And as you mentioned, has been one of their crucial postseason performers. Iggy was seen as the centerpiece of this deal at that time. And it seemed like they were giving him a two-year, $30 million deal, which didn't turn out to be exactly true. And that was kind of like, why are you giving that to this guy at this age, having not even played in Memphis up to that point? And he hasn't been a huge impact guy lately, but he has given them some quality playoff minutes. And I think that if we look to... 
Where these guys made the biggest difference? It was in the Heat's convincing upset of the Bucks, which is a series that, as crazy as it sounds, I'm not sure they get through without these two guys because having those kinds of bodies and quality perimeter defenders to throw on Giannis at the three-point line to where he couldn't easily get that head of steam and he wasn't as dominant attacking in transition and he really struggled in the half court, that is hugely due to these two guys. They took this team up several levels as far as perimeter defense and... The offensive explosion is part of what has led this Heat team to this point, but it was also that fact that they had counters for some of the best wing scorers in basketball, and maybe that hasn't necessarily been the case in this series, although I still think that they've made LeBron work hard, and they've been trapping him and double him, doubling him and taking him away as that dominant scorer and making him distribute to other guys, and if you lose that way, so be it, but I don't think that these two are, by any means, the single key to the Heat's success. But I do think there are some points you can look back on where they have really been pivotal. And this was not considered to be a smart move at the time. And I don't shy away from saying that because I thought that it was a bad deal. So if the Heat don't come away with the title, they don't come back from this 3-1 lead. Carson, in retrospect, do you still make the move to get to the finals this season? I think so, because I think that Jay Crowder has legitimate long-term value for this team. And when we look at a guy like Justice... He's a little bit of an awkward fit here because you want, for the most part, Jimmy and Bam as the centerpiece of that offense, and because neither of them are threats from deep, you just want outstanding shooters around them because they're going to collapse the defense regularly. They're going to both make really high-level decisions as far as finding open shooters, and Winslow is that kind of guy who needs to, at times, almost be a point forward and handle the ball and create for others and is a serious non-threat as a shooter at this point in his career. So the defensive value there, Crowder surpasses, and then he's also just an easier fit offensively. So when I look at how Justice Winslow can fit in Memphis, I think there's serious long-term potential there, but I also think he wouldn't have been nearly as successful in Miami long-term. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I do. I think he brings a lot more to the table for Memphis moving forward as, with such a young roster than what he would have brought to the table in the few years with Miami. Although, if we see Justice Winslow pop and him develop a jump shot, this could be a regrettable trade for the Heat team moving forward. But no, I think current-wise, it was a good move. And I do agree with that because I think that if Winslow starts shooting 35-36% from three regularly, you have a really good NBA player if he can stay healthy. And that's why I'm so excited to see him in Memphis. I think that that fast break offense that was already so exceptional gets taken up another level when you have a 6'8 guy who can handle, is a bulldog getting to the rim, and potentially if he can shoot as well. And you also have John Morant and Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. That's a lot of transition offense. Let's talk about the team on the other side of this. In the LA Lakers, because one of the biggest questions for these guys all year long has been, who is their third best guy? Because we know who's at the top, we know the two stars who are driving this entire train, and it's been sort of just this hodgepodge of role players, it seemed like they were strung together, I still don't know who I can count on game to game, so I'm going to ask you the impossible question here, Logan. Who will we remember as the Lakers' third best player from this season? And there's a lot of different answers here, Carson. I think you could make... <laughs> and I can't believe I'm saying this. I think you can make a finals case for Alex Caruso just yeah, because of totally. what he's added for them for them defensively as an off-ball shooter. Uh, I'm going to take for the finals just these four games that we have seen. I'm going to take Markeith Morris because uh, I was extremely skeptical as him as a part of the offense. 10.5 points, four boards, 40.6 from the field, and 42% from deep. On the playoffs as a whole, too, 43% from deep. Markeith has been a great spot-up shooter. Uh, you could go Kyle Kuzma as well. He's delivered what you've expected, the bare minimum, 10 points, uh, a little bit of a corner spot-up uh, shot here and there, and 39% in the finals, a step up from what we saw in the playoffs. But 
these other guys have been horrendous, Carson. Danny Green, 23% from deep. Uh, Rajon Rondo reverted back to Boston Celtic Rondo, uh, 28% from deep. Uh, it's been abysmal to watch, and I guess there's a KCP argument to be made here as well. He can get an iso bucket against the painfully slow Duncan Robinson. Uh, finals as a whole, I'll take Markeith Morris. He's been the third best offensive player just as a spot-up shooter. And uh, for the playoffs as a whole, yeah, you've gotten what you expected out of Kyle Kuzma. As I said, an inefficient 10 points a night and nothing else. It's a hilarious spread of options that we have here. As the third best player on a championship team, think about as we go throughout the past few years who that guy has been. Pascal Siakam, Clay Thompson or Draymond Green, Kevin Love, Chris Bosh, Kawhi Leonard, you would probably argue for that Spurs team. And now we have one of these guys. I think it's interesting that Markeith Morris is your choice because... I considered him as one of my sort of outside options because he's been fantastic shooting the ball, 43% from deep in these playoffs, as you said. Also only 6.4 points per game because when the bubble was beginning and early in the playoffs, he was barely playing. And now we've seen him have 19 points in a finals game and be this consistent sharpshooter from deep. And that's what's so fascinating about the Lakers is Production-wise throughout these playoffs, Rondo has been their third-best player, averaging 8.5, 4.7, and shooting 39% from deep. He was also terrible in the regular season, as I have said time and time again, and now over these last two games has been terrible again, scoring 6 points on 3 of 15 shooting. I can't take Danny Green, who I expected would be their third-best player coming into the season, because he's just been so shaky doing the one thing that he truly excels at, and that is making open shots, 33% from deep in the playoffs. As you mentioned, you could look at Kuzma talent-wise, but I'm not sure the production or the efficiency is there. I also thought about Caruso just because of his unparalleled effort and cutting and defense, and I really would consider him. I think it's a ridiculous choice when it comes down to it. I think that Rondo has a higher ceiling because of what he can be is that playmaker running the second unit, and when he's shooting well and also fully engaged on defense, he can be really good. He's looked a quick, quick uh, step quicker, been really good finishing at the rim. He can also be terrible. Kuzma has a higher ceiling because of his natural ability as that fluid shot maker. But for one game, Logan, I think I'm taking KCP, which is just so strange to hear come out of my own mouth. He's averaged 10-plus in the playoffs on 38.5% from the field. He's really not that great. He doesn't do anything exceptionally well. I think that Caruso really gives me pause because although he's not that reliable from deep, his impact on winning is undeniable. Just getting to every loose ball, scrapping defensively for the entire game, getting open off the ball. I don't feel comfortable with any of these choices. Again, Rondo has been it for most of these playoffs, but when it comes down to it in a game six, I almost just want the guy who I feel like isn't going to kill me. And KCP can be that guy, but he's probably going to make some shots and play some good defense. I hate 2020. We have Carson Brever coming on to Nerd Sesh giving a <laughs> Contavious Caldwell Pope is the third best player on a championship winning team take. This, this sucks. <laughs> it's just so strange. Because when I'm looking at these options, I'm like, who's going to hurt me the least? And maybe I'm just scared to say Caruso because he doesn't have the upside. Because I really did think about Caruso. Like, if I'm trusting someone for a game, it might be him. But regardless, just a hilarious group of options. And it's insane that this team is managing to win the championship with this group. But also, it's guys have stepped up. We didn't even talk about Dwight Howard, who obviously has been really good throughout most of the season and these playoffs. As we look to this Miami Heat team, though, and reflect on them some more. They have one of the biggest differences in league history as far as regular season and postseason performance, especially considering what we were seeing from them in the latter half of the regular season. So as we look back on this team, what to you was the biggest difference between the regular season heat and the playoff heat? 
Well, first, as we mentioned, the deal to get uh, Crowder and Iguodala at the deadline, they were 20th in defensive rating at the time. They bumped up to 11th in defensive rating to wrap up the regular season. But more important than the trade was the play of Drogic and Tyler Hero. Um, you've seen here in the finals, Drogic has been the missing piece in these last few losses. Uh, the Heat offense just doesn't run the same without him. When it stalls out, they go to... Uh, Tyler Hero to create a shot or a Duncan Robinson off-balance three or it, they're just bad shots that they're not getting because Drogic isn't out there and uh, Drogic and Hero's step up in production was needed to make this playoff push uh, with the added wing depth. Uh, Drogic uh, up in three points per game and uh, his numbers are a little bit skewed because of the miss uh, the missing games in the finals. 24-4 and four in the playoffs, 16-3-5 and five in the regular season. Hero, uh, his three-point percentage is down but he's shooting at a much more higher volume in the playoffs. Playoffs 16, 5, and 4, 44% from the field. Hero's been exceptional. It's something that we have not seen on the biggest level, the biggest stage of the NBA. We have not seen from a guy this young the most threes made from a rookie in playoff history. And I mean, we saw exceptional performances in the regular season from Hero 225 pieces against the Suns and Wizards, a 30 piece against the Thunder, but he's taken a massive leap in production and a much bigger role here in the playoffs. Uh, for Drogic, a mediocre regular season by his standards, kind of underrated as we move into the playoffs. But uh, like I said, the Heat would not have been here without the production from these two guys. And um, in the finals, they have the Heat have suffered because they've played such great defense on LeBron and AD. And if Drogic was healthy, I think that they steal a few of these games against the Lakers. We agree completely, Logan. And I think that there's a bunch of things you can point to with this team because they got better in almost every single way. They were 17-19 and 19 in the second half of the regular season. They lost four of their last five games in the bubble before the playoffs, and they were the five seed. They were by seed the underdogs to the Indiana Pacers. And they have won out, obviously, because they have been the tougher team in a way that doesn't stand out the same way in the regular season and is accentuated in the playoffs. You can point to the huge minutes from Crowder, as you mentioned, Hero's Improvement, Jimmy stepping up as more of that alpha scorer, but to me, it is the guy who you were talking about along with Tyler Hero in Goran Dragic, because I don't want to forget that Kendrick Nunn started over him this season, and for most of the year, was outscoring him, played more minutes per game, and we saw Dragic take this ascension to where he was their leading scorer through two rounds. He started the playoffs with six straight 20-point games in fourth quarters throughout this postseason, averaging five and a half points per game. So, I just feel robbed that we didn't get to see him in these finals because he was so pivotal to what the Heat were doing. They do not have that second creator. They've had to turn to Nunn in stretches, who hasn't really stepped up to that role. And for the most part, they just haven't wanted to play him in these big spots. And so they tried to go to Hero, and Hero struggled and was inefficient and forced the issue. As you mentioned, we've seen Duncan Robinson. The Lakers have played some excellent defense against him, just refusing to let him get comfortable and get any open looks. So he's been largely ineffective. And Drogic was that guy who made it so Jimmy didn't have to go out there and get 40-11-13 for the Heat to win. Because Drogic could be their best offensive player on any given night. He was that in some pivotal games against the Bucks and the Celtics and the Pacers. And when you lose out on that, it really changes everything. I do think at 33 years old, this is the best we've ever seen him. This is what he should be commended for most in his legacy. The guy has been so good for so long. I love the Slovenian Slinky. He was a predecessor to Luka Doncic in the lineage of these brilliant Slovenian basketball players. And I hope that he is remembered for as good as what he really was because he's not going to show up on the stat sheet in the finals. And when people go back on basketball reference, they're not going to see much from Goran Dragas. They're going to see six points in 14 minutes or whatever it was. But he has been 
incisive, getting into the lane, knocking down those floaters, setting up others, making incredible jump shots off the dribble time and time again. And he, to me, is the biggest difference because if they don't have that second 20-point-per-game score, they don't get here, and we've seen that against the Lakers. They've struggled more offensively because they don't have that sort of release valve who, who they can just give the ball to and say, create something, make something great happen. Drogic did that. Jimmy can still do it, but it's not the same when you lose out on half of that tandem because Drogic was every bit the offensive player Jimmy was. And I don't want to sound cliche when I say this, but anytime they pan to Drogic on the bench, you can see the pain in his eyes. This is this means everything to Goran, and it it hurts to see this Heat team play without him. Uh, more importantly, like I said, just this Heat team could win the series. I think if Goran Drogic was healthy, that's how much he meant to this roster. Completely, I I totally agree. I think that he was the true member of a big three. And this Heat team had two All-Stars, deservedly so. Drogic was their sixth man, and he just took a step up to where he was right there with Bam and Jimmy as far as importance for this team. And we didn't get to see him, and that really sucks. And I still think that he, again, should be remembered in basketball history for what he did this year because it's exceptional to see a guy at this age take that kind of leap from regular season to postseason in helping such an underdog story be realized. Let's talk about the opposite of an underdog. In LeBron James, because inevitably it always comes back to his legacy, and we've talked about it before, but at 35 years old, now presumptively unless chaos unfolds, being the best player on a championship team, maybe you would push back on that, but in my opinion, how will we remember this season from the King? An absolute slog, a marathon. I mean, we started in October and we are ending the next year in October. Carson, has Michael Jordan ever done that? Come on. (laughs) No, he hasn't. Great point. Honestly, from Bron, though, this is one of the most impressive carries I've seen from a player in history. Like, I know he has AD alongside him, but this is one of the worst supporting casts I've ever seen on a championship team. And we just talked about it. Caruso, Morris, Green, and Rondo, none of them producing. Uh, his averages have not wavered. And I think it's impressive with this cast that he's about to gentleman sweep every team that he comes up against in the playoffs. Um, 26.9, 10.5, 8.8, 54% from the field, and 35 here in the playoffs. Uh, 11 boards, 8.5 assists, 28 from him here in the finals. Uh, LeBron is just an absolute constant. I don't think this is a... I don't think this is a classic LeBron season, and it's hard to compare to other LeBron seasons that we've seen because we had that break in the middle, but uh, this has been a man who's been on a mission ever since they came back in the bubble, and... Uh, I've been impressed every step of the way. LeBron has not taken a step back. I'm hoping that he continues this into the next few seasons and we can see uh, competitive basketball out of the Lakers and the best basketball player in the world do it once again next season. Logan, I think the most important thing out of everything that you said is that LeBron was a man on a mission this year, and I don't want to fall into some trope there, but we will remember him as the best player in the world from this season. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, So many people came away from last year saying he was no longer in that tier. I thought it was ridiculous. I stood by the fact that he was the best player in the world. But what's been so incredible is how he has achieved that. Dominating out of the post more. Shooting a career high in threes. Weaponizing that step back more. Averaging a career high in assists to where he's absolutely commanding games to a level that even though he's always controlled games like nobody else in basketball, we've almost never seen from him. Because he has the ball in his hands at all times. He's facilitating. He's dominating on truly all three levels, and in the playoffs, he's averaging 27, 10.5, and and 9 on 54.5% shooting. It's one of his most incredible runs ever. It is cementing his legacy if it wasn't already cemented, and I absolutely think it goes down as one of his most incredible achievements of all time. We can look to 
a couple spots where he actually hasn't been great in these finals. Game three really struggled with the eight turnovers, didn't take over as that score. In the beginning of game four, we saw some more of that sloppy, disengaged play. But when we're talking about how it will be remembered, that will be forgotten because the result will override it. The numbers will be overwhelming about how excellent he was, and deservedly so because it's it's a special thing that only really one other player has done in NBA history, being the best player on a title team at 35 and the best player in the world at 35 while winning a title, and that is Michael Jordan. How much pushback do you think that LeBron haters are going to give Carson to this championship? I mean, with the bubble, with the asterisks, how much do people weigh a championship like this versus what we would have seen? Or do you think people care at all? Should be 100%. Should be every bit the same as every other ring in NBA history. And if we are still at the asterisk thing, when we have seen multiple months of really high quality basketball, then I think people have an agenda in purporting that notion. And I think that that is because people hate LeBron James. And it is such a divisive argument. And that is, I think, part of the reason why we see such excessive praise of him on the other end, because it's people responding to this Hatred on one end. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the hatred is because of the excessive praise. I don't know which came first, the chicken or LeBron. Really tough to say. But (laughs) every championship counts the same throughout NBA history. If we are going to start discounting championships, let's write off the fact that the Raptors beat the Warriors without two of their three best players in last year's finals. Or (laughs) the fact that Kobe and Shaq had to go up against three measly opponents from the East in the early 2000s. Or that in 1981, Larry Bird beat the... 40 and 42 Rockets, or that in the 70s, everybody was just okay for the most part. Let's just write it all off. No, every championship counts. Every championship is paramount to a great player's legacy, and that is my stance on this. And I am not in on people deriding this as, oh, this Heat team wasn't great. Oh, they got banged up. This is a very good Heat team, and the injuries are unfortunate, but it happens. It's still a championship. It counts the same. I love that your first pushback to any time we bring up asterisks to titles is any Warriors injury that we saw. It's not like you guys were loaded anyway. It's I, I Don't get me wrong. You're right in all of your takes. You're justified in all of them. They just crack me up. <laughs> no, I mean, fair enough. Because I also do think that for the people who are saying, oh, look at how incredible LeBron, some of LeBron's title runs have been, he has been the beneficiary of some not asterisk-worthy moments, but just crazy moments in past finals that do not happen 90% of the time. I'll ask you a different question, Carson. How do you think, compared to other finals opponents that LeBron's has faced, where, do this, where does this Heat team rank among them? That's a good question. I think that they are probably last out of the bunch because he's been facing Western Conference opponents for his entire career up to this point, which is just sort of inevitably tougher because the West has been so convincingly better than the East for the most part. The East is as good as it's been in our lifetimes right now. But I think that if you look at that 07 Spurs team, that was a fantastic group. Obviously, the 2014 Spurs were great, as were the 2013 Spurs. The 2012 Thunder, you could say they were still on the up, but They were immensely talented to a level that this Heat team can't match. This Heat team doesn't compare to any of the Warriors squads. And then you go back to the 2011 Mavs, and there's a comparison to be made there, and maybe that's where you could make the argument. But I do think that Dirk was so transcendent, and they had that level of team cohesion that was just up another notch. I also think that this Lakers team is better than that LeBron Heat team. Do you think that they come in last, or would you take them over the 2011 Mavs? Uh, I do think they come in last just because uh, the Mavs were such a... Uh, they were even older than this unit. They had a bunch of guys, Pedro Stoyakovich, Jason Kidd, guys who had done it and been in big moments before. Uh, you think that this Lakers team is better than that Heat team? 
I do. Because I think that LeBron is not quite at that same level, but he's pretty much there. He's still the best player in the world like he was in the 2010-11 season. I think that AD, even though D-Wade was still near the peak of his powers, is just a different level of unstoppable. And as crazy as it is, even though Chris Bosh was really good, he wasn't that true third star. And I think that remarkably, the Lakers supporting cast has supplemented for that third star better than the Heat guys did. They were really thrown together that year. They didn't have that solid production for Mario Chalmers or Mike Miller or Ray Allen yet. If you look back at that first Heat roster, it was much more sketchy than in the subsequent three years. And that's a huge part of the reason why they didn't win. It's not just because LeBron had that meltdown. It's also because they didn't have those kind of guys who could knock down those huge shots around them. So as we look back on the the legacy of this Lakers team now, that has been so defined by these two stars, as we just mentioned, who will we remember as the Lakers' most most important player when it came down to it? It's funny that, uh, you know, I just said LeBron is the best basketball player in the world. I'm going to remember Anthony Davis's play in the finals and in the playoffs more than anything else. Uh, because this series, from the Miami Heat perspective, was so hard to watch with how many good shots that they could get, and just watching Anthony Davis send a Bam out of bio close look, close out on a Duncan Robinson three, a Tyler Hero mid-range J. Anthony Davis has been the guy in the middle. He's been playing excellent defensive player of the year caliber D every single night, and he's made every shot for this Heat roster hard, obviously um, accentuated by the limit, uh, by not having Goran Dragic on the floor getting tougher looks and Anthony Davis closing out on them. And it hasn't just been on the offensive end as well. I mean, on the defensive end, it's been on the offensive end as well. He has not missed any shots from the free throw line. He has made 54% of his threes, although limited uh, limited number of shots, 60% from the field as a whole. Honestly, I think Anthony Davis is the finals MVP, Carson. And I think it's been because he's impacted the game more on the defensive side than LeBron. It's an interesting argument. And I think that AD has at so many times been the Lakers' best player throughout these playoffs as their leading scorer, was averaging 31 a game coming into the finals, had such incredible moments in the early rounds leading up to the finals and games one and two of the finals when he was so decisively unstoppable on both ends. I think defensively, he's miles ahead of LeBron at this point in their careers. But I still think that when we look back, when it comes down to the biggest moments, let's look at fourth quarter scoring, LeBron. As the more natural closer, 6.6 a game to AD's 5.5. So even though AD is the leading scorer overall, LeBron's got him by over a point in fourth quarters. And I think that's telling. AD has been as good as a big man can be in those spots for the most part. He obviously hit a ridiculous shot against the Nuggets to win that game and had also been the only scorer for them in the last five minutes of that game. I also think if we look to how that series ended, which was the Lakers' toughest series up to this point and probably will be when all is said and done against Denver, LeBron was the one who put him away with 38, 16, and 10 and that incredible display of jump shooting like we haven't seen from him in a long time. LeBron also leads the Lakers in points, rebounds, and assists in the finals. So I think you make a great point. There have been times when AD has seemed more unstoppable offensively because he is such a nightmarish mismatch. And the efficiency has been off the charts. The raw production has been off the charts. The fact that he's doing it with such tremendous skill as a jump shooter, out of the post, as a lob threat, from deep. It's been all-around dominance from AD like we've never seen before. And LeBron has had moments where you're like, eh, what's going on here? Sometimes where he's not as aggressive, not as assertive. Games three and four of the finals, I don't think that for the most part LeBron or AD played close to their best basketball. But I still think that when it comes down to it, we will remember LeBron as the guy who defined this team. I do think it's really close. Do you want to try to sell me on why I'm wrong? Because I might be willing to be sold. 
I mean, really, I think it's more on the defensive end. I can't make a case that AD has been the better offensive player because LeBron runs this offense so well. My pushback on the fourth quarter stat would be LeBron has his has the ball in his hands more and obviously is not going to give up the rock as much. He wants to take over these fourth quarter games and score more, but uh, I'm not, I'm not going to fight a LeBron for finals MVP case. I, I, think, I think both are there to be made. I'm not going to try to sell you any harder. And... My point would be that, yes, LeBron has the ball in his hands, but that's what makes him more important. That's why perimeter players are more important in fourth quarters because they are the ones dictating those outcomes. I think that what we're going to see finals MVP-wise is LeBron takes this, and maybe you could argue it's a little bit like 2018 when Steph had a bunch of incredible games. Four out of the five, he was fantastic. and Or three out of the four, because that year was a sweep. But he was really bad in one game, and that killed his finals MVP case, and KD was just the more steady. And we could see that paralleled because AD was definitely the Lakers' best player in games one and two. But then he had, by his standards, a really down game in game three, which brings all the averages down. And oftentimes, probably too much so, we rely on numbers as far as how we remember these things. And I do think that we could see a parallel there because you have these two star guys who are near equals. If one's just a little more steady, then they will probably get the edge. Let's look at the star on the other end who has been driving this entire thing and talk about his legacy because this is the most important thing Jimmy Butler has ever done, in my opinion. How does this season change his legacy? Uh, it's made Jimmy Butler a bona fide superstar. Uh, he's proven he's a guy who can close out games. He's a guy that you can put on your best player and defend. And uh, honestly, I think after this season, I think Jimmy Butler is on that <laughs> on that DeMar DeRozan, Kawhi Leonard, kind of Jor Michael Jordan game mold spectrum. Um, in the fourth quarters of this postseason, when Jimmy has played at least seven minutes in that fourth, he's averaged 7.3 points per fourth quarter. Um, he's consistently delivered and shut the door on teams when necessary because he's had to be that guy on this very young team. Uh, Carson, I think an accurate comparison is Kawhi B. I think that's where Jimmy has cemented himself after this postseason. I think that this is the defining moment of Jimmy Butler's career. And I think we need to pause and look back at where things were headed because he was unhappy in Chicago. He was criticized for demanding out of there, even while dragging that lowly roster to the playoffs. And then he couldn't fit in Minnesota personality wise, I guess, even though I think we way too often forget they were a top three seed out West when fully healthy 50 plus games into the season, the Minnesota Timberwolves who have been helpless ever since then and were in the many years before then. Then he got booted from Philly, even as that essential perimeter creator. And the team, of course, took a huge step back, losing him, trying to supplement him with the Josh Richardsons and Al Horfords of the world. And you see Tobias Harris doing way too much out of the high post and from 20 feet, and it's all collapsed. Jimmy was the guy who made it work. He was that pick and roll creator. He was that late game shot maker. They completely lost that. And now if you look at where it has taken him to this spot where he just is so inherently... He just fits with this Miami Heat culture and embodies it. And he's averaging 22-6-6 six, and six in the playoffs. He's third and fourth quarter scoring out of guys who got beyond the first round behind only Jamal Murray, who was just on another planet, and Kawhi Leonard. And you just referred to him as Kawhi B. Nothing wrong with being behind Kawhi in that respect. In the finals, Jimmy is averaging 27.5-8-10. Obviously had the signature game of his career in Game 3 with 40-11-13. And, and what is so important is from a historical perspective, he is only the fifth guy of this generation who has been the best player on a team that made the finals. We have LeBron, KD, Steph, and Kawhi. Guys who haven't done it. Giannis, AD, in my opinion, at the very least. Harden, Dame, PG. That is special. He has joined company of guys who are all top 25 of all time, in my opinion. And he's certainly not there because the rest of his resume doesn't compare to a Kawhi or a Steph or a KD or a LeBron. But 
In game three, he had that kind of defining moment that should be remembered forever. And I've always been a Jimmy guy. Sometimes I've wondered if I'm too much of a Jimmy guy because I think that he does so many things for you at all times where he's always going to affect the game. He can control it to a certain extent whenever he wants to. And he's done that throughout these playoffs without the three, getting to the line relentlessly, penetrating, knocking down from mid-range, getting into the post. The guy is just going to win you basketball games no matter what. And there's a reason, I think, that even though he is not a top 10 talent in basketball and probably hasn't been at any point in his career, maybe for a season, that he is one of the five guys who's been the best player on the champ in on the team that made the finals. And obviously you can point to the incredible supporting cast and infrastructure and all that, but the dude is a winner. He does what it takes to win. And I don't mean that in some abstract sense. I mean, he literally has the skill set. It's like Kyle Lowry, these guys who do all the little things, who even if they're not scoring 30, can win you the game in so many other ways with defense, with playmaking, with scrapping on the boards if he needs to. That's what defines Jimmy Butler. He's just also been able to step up and score 28 a game in these finals and get 40 in a game when they really needed it and be that alpha score. And that is the most incredible part to me. How do you think we remember Jimmy in relation to some other peers from this era? Because we have guys like Paul George and Damian Lillard who maybe have more shiny resumes coming into this season, but do not have an achievement like this. Doesn't matter. Jimmy's above them. Uh, I'd say at least Paul George, especially after what we saw from yeah. him in these playoffs. Uh, Damian, it's a little closer just because Lillard's never left the Blazers. I think that's a tougher comp, but uh, just a finals appearance and being the guy on a championship team puts them above guys like that, in my opinion. Lillard's never been to the finals. He's got to the Western Conference finals. Uh, I think Butler's a step above all of those guys. It's so special, and it's the kind of thing that makes a resume. And when we look at him on the court, it's tough for me to say that he's better than Damian Lillard because Dame can get you 30-8 and eight so effortlessly. But when it comes to winning time, man, it's a tough decision to make, and a finals appearance as the best player makes your resume. I firmly believe that because it's an incredible accomplishment. And as you mentioned, Jimmy took over a pretty young Miami team, obviously veteran leadership throughout, but a pretty young Miami roster and took them to the finals. Why do you think a young roster like Miami worked, obviously with their shooting as well? Why did they work over teams like the Sixers in Minnesota who were comparable in age? Why didn't they work with Jimmy as well? Cohesion. There's just something special about this team, that kind of shared identity and toughness that you just don't see from a third-year guy like Bam Adebayo or a rookie like Tyler Hero or damn near a rookie in Duncan Robinson who played 15 games last year. It's just different, and you don't see that often, and that is what has made this team so special, along with Jimmy taking it to another level and Drogic and Hero improving and all that. Let's talk about one guy who was so important during the regular season for this Heat team and then kind of got left out of that mix, and that is Kendrick Nunn, who we were talking about before anyone else, Logan, because he dropped 40-plus on the Rockets in the preseason, and I was all in, and you got all in right with me. How will we remember Kendrick Nunn from this season? It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's a, he's a guard who can score the basketball. Um, 20 points, a lot of 20-point games early off at the start of the season. I, I thought Nunn was the guy. I thought he was going to have the, the Tyler Hero postseason that we saw. But uh, I think last night demonstrated why Kendrick Nunn was not getting the playoff minutes. Uh, the shot clock's going down. He doesn't pass the ball. He decides to go ISO against Anthony Davis. And just gets his shot obliterated. Carson, it's like I was driving to the rack. It was a weak little floater on the left side. AD read it like me and you playing one-on-one. -on -one. It was just, you sent it. I love being AD. <laughs> I love being AD in this comparison. And, and it's a good one because he just, every time we go, I drive to the rack, you sent it, AD sends it into the, the crowd. Um, it was bad basketball. It was a bad decision by a young player. And 
I think that Spolster should have given him a little more burn at the start of the playoffs to get him ready for hard playoff basketball against some of the best basketball players in the world. Uh, we're going to remember him for having a flashy scoring season, a guy who can help the Heat moving forward. And, I mean, he got the all-rookie first-team nod to go along with it. So there is value to this year. I would have liked to have seen a bigger role, but Goran Dragic took it from him, and deservedly so, from what minutes we have seen played by Kendrick Nunn in the finals, low shooting percentages, and not the same effectiveness that we saw against worse teams in the regular season. I think what's so remarkable is the drop-off from Kendrick Nunn has not been talked about nearly as much as it should, because we can talk about how different regular season and postseason basketball are all we want, but he went from being their second leading scorer for much of the season, above Bam and Dragic, to 5.4 points per game in the playoffs. And he was one of the all-time incredible stories in basketball because he averaged over 22 a game over his first five games of the season in the month of October, was a three-time rookie of the month. As you mentioned, first-team all-rookie over Tyler Hero. It started back in the preseason. He seemed to just naturally fit with that heat culture where he was competitive on the defensive end, even though he didn't have those great physical tools. And he was... Sort of like the Dragic of the regular season, where Jimmy didn't average 20 a game in the regular season. He's up in the playoffs now because he's embraced that alpha role more, but when they needed someone to close, a lot of the time it was Kendrick Nunn. And now we have seen some of his flaws, of course. He doesn't necessarily have that playmaking ability and that vision, and he does get zeroed in on the bucket. And he doesn't have that sort of reliable safety valve and getting to the line because... He really doesn't attack downhill aggressively very much, and he's a little bit contact-averse down there, so he doesn't get to the line very much. So he's dependent on making those mid-range jumpers and those threes, and it's just not as sustainable as a guy like Jimmy, who no matter what is getting to the line 10 a game, 10 times a game. So you're getting 8 or 9 points out of that automatically. I do want to ask you, though, because I think we both agree that Kendrick Nunn will not be remembered in any way as a pivotal member of this team, even though throughout much of the regular season he really was. What is his role going forward? Because they have him on a dirt cheap contract through next season. We'll see how his value grows from there. But what does he mean to this Heat team next year? Uh, Nunn is going to be used as leverage, basically, against Goran Dragic for this offseason because uh, Nunn's a guy who's learned behind Dragic, and if he's coached upright, can obviously be a, a similar player in the role of the offense. He's basically a backup plan at this point. If we can't bring Dragic back, if we can't bring any other guys, Nunn is going to be a solid piece. And I think he's going to get a lot more minutes because this is an aging roster next season. Um, do you think next season, if the Heat make the playoffs, say Drogic and Nunn are on the roster, I mean, I, you'd have to go and start Drogic again next season with his performance in this year. I don't think there's any way you can go with Nunn moving forward in a big role. Uh, you have to see him just become a more efficient player. He's just not a good enough He's not an efficient enough shooter to be putting out there for point guard minutes, and he doesn't see the floor well as Dragic. Uh, Nunn has to get better as a player to have a bigger role moving forward with the Heat. I think that what he needs to be going forward is a really good sixth man who can run that second unit competently, maybe not facilitating for others as much, but being a 12-point-per-game scorer off the bench or what have you. And obviously Hero filled that role this year for the most part. He was coming off the bench, and he is certainly better than Kendrick Nunn, but I think that we can see Nunn grow into that role. He does have a little bit more of that natural ball handling ability than Hero. And I just hope that he's at least a somewhat valuable player going forward. Because although he really struggled when he did get out there in these playoffs, I do think he's a better player than what we saw. He's at the very least a valuable rotation piece. And he was not that in these playoffs. And maybe part of that is that his value depreciates in the postseason when, like you said... He doesn't have that vision. He doesn't always make winning plays. He doesn't have that reliable bucket-getting ability because he doesn't draw those fouls. 
I think of those are all fair criticisms. I also still think that he's a good basketball player and he's not a gimmick. He did this for 70 games where he was scoring 15 plus. He's a good player. He has a place in this league. And if it's not with the Heat, maybe it's getting buckets on a bad team. But I do think that with a second unit, he can have value there. So let's go back to some big picture stuff for the Lakers. Because although we can talk about Kendrick Nunn all day, and we have before, the Lakers are now shaping up to be NBA champions. And we don't want to jinx it, but if we do, who cares, right? A Heat championship would be awesome. That would be pretty exciting. If the Lakers hold on, how do they stack up to recent NBA champions? They don't. Um, I don't think they compare at all. I think any of the Golden State Warriors squads, I think, run over them with Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, because the Heat have kept these games close, and they can shoot the three ball really well, too. You don't think the Warriors are going to expose that issue with their defense? I think the Raptors take them out because I like Kawhi, and I like their unit overall and depth more as a whole. Um, The Spurs... I think the Spurs are probably the best comp, the older ones with the young Kawhi. I think the old Heat teams are better than this Lakers squad, uh, although you argued against earlier, Carson. Uh, I don't think this Lakers team is as solid as any other championship team that we've seen in the past, probably since the 2014 Spurs or the 2011 Mavs, in my opinion. I don't think it's a bad thing, though. I think we're seeing that the fact that the Heat squad can keep these games close and hang with the Lakers is only a testament to how Miami plays basketball and the parity that we see in the NBA nowadays. Um... But no, I don't think they're as good as some of the championship teams that we've seen in the past. I think you're underselling them a bit. And I'm obviously going to agree with you on the Warriors. I think certainly the last four versions of the Warriors that we saw would be better than this team. The 14-15, I think you might be able to argue, because even though they won 67 games and they won the title, Steph wasn't quite his unstoppable self yet at that point, and that's why he didn't win Finals MVP. He still should have won Finals MVP, but... He was giving you 23-24 a game instead of 27-28-30 like he has over the subsequent years when it's really gotten to winning time. But I also agree with you on last year's Raptors team just because compare their 6th or 7th best guy to the Lakers' 3rd best guy, and I'll take the Raptors' 6th or 7th best guy, not to mention they also had Kawhi in his all-time peak form, averaging 30 a game, Lowry being unbelievable, Siakam just abusing guys one-on-one. And this Lakers team is different as far as how they compare, because they're so uniquely dependent on two stars and then whoever else kind of wanted to step up on that given day. They don't compare to the Warriors, who had four perennial stars, or the Raptors, who had so many guys that were essentially guaranteed to give you quality production beyond their superstar guy in Kawhi Leonard. But when we look throughout these recent champions, the Lakers are on the verge of going 16-4, and and that is special. To only lose one game in each series to never truly be tested? The only teams to go 16-4 and in the playoffs this century are the 2017 Warriors, the 2007 Spurs, and the 0-2-0-1 Lakers. And those are three of the five best teams of this century, probably, taking the 07 Spurs out of that mix, but the 0-1 Lakers are certainly there. The 17 Warriors are the best team of this century, definitively. And when we look back at that heat, at those Heat teams... I think that the 2012-13 Heat were really a great all-around team. They won 66 games. It was peak LeBron and all that is fine and dandy. But outside of that year, I think this Lakers team certainly compares and might be better because I think AD is just on a different level from what Dwayne Wade was at that point in his career. And the supporting cast, as wonky as it is, when has their supporting cast in entirety not shown up? It's never happened. A bunch of guys don't show up on an individual day, but someone has always stepped up and... I think the Raptors comparison is interesting because they're so dramatically different and we have that immediate contrast between last year and this year. I think we would both take the Raptors in that series and I think that that speaks because the 
Raptors should not have even won last year's title. If the Warriors were healthy, they would have won, which I think speaks volumes to how much more parity there is in basketball right now. But am I too high on the Lakers for primarily dominating teams throughout these playoffs? They haven't gone six in a series up to this point. That's really special. No, I think that's impressive. My pushback to that would probably just be the caliber of teams that these guys have played out of the West and out of the East historically, I think. I think the Lakers lucked out with the teams that they played thus far. Um, I would have much rather have seen a Clippers-Lakers matchup instead of the Nuggets because I don't really think the Nuggets stood a chance defensively, but... That's a really impressive stat, Carson. I didn't know that. So uh, thank you for informing us. Uh, of course. <laughs> I think you are a bit high, but all of your takes are justifiable. I just think that depth is a little more important than you're selling. Yes, 60 points a game from AD and LeBron is hard to overcome, especially when, as you said, one of the guys shows up. I think that depth would play a much better, f bigger factor if we were able to see these fictional matchups uh, happen. And I think that that's why I would take a team like last year's Raptors, who don't have that same sheer power at the top but have so many more quality players. I just think this is a weird Lakers team. They are very different from recent champions that we've seen, but those two guys driving it from the top are the most important thing for the most part. So now let's take a real step back and just reflect on both of these team seasons and look at their defining moments. Let's start with the Heat. What is the signature defining moment of what has been an incredible season for them in 2019-2020? Uh, the defining moment has to be sending the Bucks home, uh, mostly because no one expected it to happen. Uh, Jimmy and the Heat were supposed to be the punching bag for Giannis to run over, get to the finals, but the Heat were well-scouted and hungry for that series. Uh, the wall-up defense that we saw that they played on Giannis, switching Bam onto him a lot, uh, is was great. It was genius by Eric Spolstra. And then... What we saw from them in the series, five guys in double-digit scoring, Butler, Drogic, Adebayo, Crowder, Hero, some really stellar shooting from Duncan Robinson, uh, Kelly Olenek, and great defense from guys like Iguodala and Crowder. Uh, I think just the upset overall of the Bucks is the defining moment of the season. We're not going to remember them. Yes, we're going to remember them getting ran over by the Lakers, but that's not how we want to remember the season in a positive light. It's the slaying of the dragon, it's taking out the Bucks and Giannis because it absolutely floored the NBA community. I don't think, I'd say maybe 10% of the NBA could have saw this coming. I think that's a very good selection, and it was obviously an incredible accomplishment. I'm going to go to the moment right after that, though. Game one versus the Celtics, when they followed that up, because, listen, I've been an anti-Bucks guy for as long as anyone, and I still didn't expect the Heat to do that whatsoever. I didn't think it was actually going to be that close because I was also a little bit out on the Heat based on what I had seen lately. But when you look at Game 1 versus the Celtics, they were the underdog there. I thought they were going to go down in 5. They were down 12 going into the 4th quarter, and we just saw this unbelievable flurry of guys flying around the court, getting every loose ball, knocking down 3s, and just intimidating the Celtics, this incredibly talented team, in a way that you rarely see throughout the history of basketball. Dragic had 29, was unreal. Crowder had 22. Jimmy had that incredible shot in the end of regulation to first put them ahead and then that and one in overtime to sort of seal the deal. And then Bam had that incredible block. It was just the, the accumulation of everything that the Heat were good at on a huge stage where I did not expect them to be able to pull that magic out again. They survived a 26-point performance from Marcus Smart on the other end. So that, to me, was the moment where I thought, this, this fight with this team is next level. They really do have anyone who can beat you on any given night. And yes, they definitely proved that against the Bucs as well. I just thought, what a great matchup for them against Milwaukee. They did such a good job of exploiting that team's weaknesses. And when I looked at Boston, I didn't see those weaknesses. 
and the Heat were just better. They stepped up. I think you could point to maybe Game 3 of these finals as another defining moment just because it was such an impressive win when they were counted out. But that was really Jimmy's game. That wasn't what defined this team and what made them great. To me, Game 1 is the epitome of that. It was effort. It was shooting. It was defense. It was crunch time winning moments from Drogic and Jimmy and everyone on this team that made them so great. I think it's a good pick, Carson. I would say overall, though, do you think they played better basketball as a whole against the Celtics, or do you think they played better ball against the Bucs? Because I'd say they played better against Giannis and them. I agree, but that's part of why I'm so impressed by the fact that they were able to win game one of that series against the Celtics, because they were down, and they were convincing against the Bucs. They weren't honestly that close in several of those games. Against the Celtics, they had to grit these out time and again and launch these comebacks and have these miraculous performances. And that's what defines this team in my mind. It's not when they were at their best in this somewhat convenient matchup and they didn't have the expectations. It was after they had pulled off the first miracle that they then pulled off another one and that they did it in this gritty Miami Heat team cohesive fashion. And that is how I will remember this team. The Bucs series was incredible. I will remember what they did against the Celtics though because I had counted them out and I didn't think that it was going to happen and they just so authoritatively proved me wrong. So let's now pose the same question for the Lakers. What was the defining moment of their season? Uh, As sad as it is, I think it has to be the passing of Kobe Bryant. Um, And it just, it changed the complexity of the season for the Lakers, the mentality that this has to be the year. I think that LeBron instilled a championship mentality to all these guys before the season started. But uh, after the passing of Kobe, I think it kicked it up a notch to where it's, it was truly championship or bust. We will not accept anything less. We have got to commemorate this season in honor of Kobe and Gigi. And, you know, they dedic- they um, debut the Mamba jerseys. They're undefeated in them. They've shown it in press conferences, just what they say. LeBron sitting on the floor against the Nuggets. Your job's not finished. It is. It has been in full dedication to Kobe. And um, I-, I would love to see if you could point to a game that you thought defined their season better, Carson. But uh, for me, I think it's uh, the overarching story that the Lakers are doing this for Kobe. I think that's a great selection, and part of the reason is this Lakers team hasn't been pushed six or seven. They haven't pulled off some miraculous upset. They didn't have this triumphant win over the Clippers, so they don't have that same kind of signature-defining moment that the Heat have in either their series win over the Bucs or the Celtics, in my opinion. I do think, though, on the court, I would point to Game 5 versus the Nuggets, which to me just felt like the peak of unstoppable LeBron and AD. LeBron had 38, 16, and 10. AD had 27. And it just didn't matter what was happening on the other end. Jamal Murray was having another heroic shot-making performance. Jokic was pretty good. And it just didn't matter because the Lakers were just that much better. And that, to me, was the clearest demonstration of their unstoppable force. When LeBron was knocking down those step-backs and mid-range jumpers, it was just... This team is so clearly the deserving champions, and no one was ever going to stop them in my eyes at that moment. I also do feel like, though, despite being the one seed and the team with, when it came down to the conference finals, the two best players still alive on their roster, there were some trials and tribulations, and there were some hilarious uh, expectations of failure for this team. We have to acknowledge the fact that going into that Blazers series, there were people foolish enough to pick the Blazers, and I think a lot of people thought that it was going to be a competitive series. And they lost game one, and then game two, they came out and faced all this unwarranted doubt and held the top bubble offense, which the Blazers had been, to 88 points. They ended essentially in one game, that Cinderella dream, and the unstoppable Damian Lillard, and Nurkic was playing unbelievable. AD had 31, 
That defense was suffocating, and it was another moment where I looked at them and I just thought, they're on a different level. So there have been a couple of those. Um, I think that Kobe is obviously the driving force, and beyond just the Lakers, as crazy as it is because this 2020 season has been so memorable for so many reasons, that will be one of the defining moments. We lost one of this sport's greatest stars in a way that we have never lost someone of that caliber before, and someone who was so embedded in the community and culture of the most famous organization in the sport. And I think that that's undeniably a huge moment. But when it comes to on the court, do you agree with my selections? Do you have any other moments that you think better reflect them? Anything from these finals maybe? Because neither of us touched on that just because it feels like that hasn't been their defining moment. Like it wasn't their biggest test. Like it wasn't when we saw LeBron and AD at their absolute peak. I think the Blazers is an interesting mention just because of how hot Damian Lillard and the Blazers were coming into that series. Uh, But no, I like the pick of the Nuggets because I, I don't know. I felt a little more... I was a little more scared for the Lakers against the Nuggets than any other team they'd come up against because Murray and Jokic had been so on fire. Uh, but no, I think those are two excellent picks. If I had to pick a game from the finals, I'd probably say uh, this last one because it felt like finally this team shutting the door and playing good defense because the Heat were not making shots. They just... I We've said it over and over again. Last night, the Heat just crumbled without Drogic, and you could see it in that fourth quarter just that falling apart. I think that's a good choice because that was one the Lakers managed to win without playing necessarily their best basketball or shooting the lights out or having AD get them 35. I also think from the finals, game one was telling because even though it was in this unconventional way of just shooting the lights out, the Lakers just blew the heat off the court. And yes, everything went wrong on the other end and they obviously had those two injuries, but it was again another moment where it was just like, here's the gap. And There were reasons I think that happened that weren't necessarily, oh, AD and LeBron were so exceptional. It was because partially the Lakers were just shooting the lights out, but it also just took the air out of this moment where the Heat got off to the great start to that game and there was so much momentum building for them. And then the Lakers were just like, no, we're better. And that's been the theme of the season for them. They have time and again answered those questions. They were the deserved one seed. They played harder than the Clippers. They played better than the Clippers. They didn't even end up having to face the Clippers when it was the defending champion Toronto Raptors. They weren't able to get through their challenges, the best regular season team in basketball and the Milwaukee Bucks, their flaws were exposed and the Lakers just kept chugging and they're going to get through this thing in all likelihood pretty comfortably. So that's going to do it for us here today. We are almost done with this whole thing. It has been a thrill. It has been exciting. We will still be talking basketball, but we probably will not be talking finals basketball for very much longer. I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. <laughs>